This is Gene Lance on the Workers Beat Extra. This is a talk I gave for Labor Day of 2022 to a church group near Dallas, Texas. I started by introducing myself. I'm Gene Lance, host of KNON's Workers Beat program every Saturday morning at 9 o'clock, knon.org. I'm also the president of the retirees at UAW 848 in Grand Prairie, Texas, and I'm the editor and the archivist, and I've studied labor history for a long time. I'm the sergeant-at-arms at the Dallas Central Labor Council, AFL-CIO, and I'm also the director of communications. I'm most proud of my position as president of the Texas Alliance for Retired Americans, statewide president for the retiree organization. I have figured out a way to present union history, labor history, that I think makes sense. The problem with studying labor history, aside from studying any kind of history, is that it comes in little smatterings here and there. Of course, some of it's self-serving, some of it isn't true, some of it was written by our enemies. In the case of labor history, a lot of it was written by our enemies or by people who pretend to be neutral when nothing is actually neutral in the class struggle. But I have figured out a way to try to make sense of it all. And I'm going to do that by presenting two different views of what a union is. A union that most people think of as a union is what I'm going to call business unionism. In that way, you can think of a union as sort of a business. It has to have a certain amount of income and a certain amount of outflow, and its income has to exceed its outflow, just like any other business. The income for a union local is dues payments by the members. If you have a lot of members or if your members make a lot of money so that you can charge pretty high dues, then you have a pretty good income stream for your business union. And you spend that money mostly on experts. You spend that money on servicing representatives who protect those workers from their specific boss. Each union local is usually dedicated just to employees of one boss, even though unions may amalgamate and have two or three different bosses and two or three different contracts. But they still have to have experts to defend those workers, even after they get a union contract, even if it's a very good union contract, and of course they have to have experts to get a good union contract, even after that, they still have to defend that contract on a day-by-day -day basis because the bosses always abrogate the contract. They always break the contract every chance they get, and hour by hour, day by day, workers file grievances and experts have to handle those grievances. So the money flows out from a union local into the hands of these union experts. You don't pay them enough, maybe, but you definitely have to pay them, and you have to pay them pretty good. They're experts on union law. They're experts on getting along with people. They're experts on organizing. But most of all, they're experts on that particular contract, 
whatever that contract may be. And that's how business unionism works. And it's also how just about every union local in America works. Uh, That's the way we think of unionism in America, business unionism. I'm going to contrast that with another kind of unionism, which was characterized, I think, by the industrial workers of the world back uh, between 1905 and 1917. The industrial workers of the world just said, we're just going to organize everybody. And we don't even care if we have any servicing reps or not. In fact, we don't even want any contracts. If the bosses don't do what we like, we'll just walk out. And uh, so they didn't even want to have contracts. They didn't have contracts. They also didn't have any political program. Their idea was to organize everybody and then take over the world. Uh, I'm going to call that, just for purposes of this talk, power unionism. The truth is that that kind of thinking doesn't even have a name and hardly has any adherence uh, in the union movement. Most union locals, as I said, are business unionists. I'm just going to touch on a few special years in American labor history. I'm going to start with 1877, then 1886, 1905, 1935, 1947, 1999, and this present year, 2022. In 1877, the working people of America came as close as they have ever come, before or after, to taking real power away from the bosses. There was a railroad strike. Railroads, of course, were the, the main ways that things got around in, those, in 1877. This was the middle of the Industrial Revolution. The railroads shut down a railroad terminal. The idea caught on, and they started shutting down railroad terminals here and there around the country. By the time they got to Chicago, the biggest railroad terminal of all, it was really scary for the bosses and also People were starting to have sympathy strikes. People who didn't even work in railroads were starting to go out on strike because they sensed the idea that they were going to have some power in this world as working people. It was so powerful, in fact, that the bosses responded very strongly. First, they called out the cops. The cops couldn't stop them. They called out the National Guard, and the National Guard couldn't call stop them. They called out the Army. And they literally shot workers down dead in the streets. And that's how they overcame the great railroad strike of 1877. Now, I'm supposed to have a happy ending on this story, so don't get too worried with the fact that a lot of things did not go well in labor history. In 1886, we had another very high point because there was a strike all over the world for the eight-hour day. Back in those days, people were working 12 or 14 hours a day for the same pay, for straight-time pay, and uh, they really, really wanted the eight-hour day. And this was centered in Chicago, Illinois. The organization that was behind it was the Knights of Labor. And the Knights of Labor, although they had some other problems, they literally wanted to organize everybody. They organized white people, black people, brown people, women, men, whatever you got. They had a few constraints. Of course, they couldn't organize the bosses because they wouldn't join. But the Knights of Labor (laughs) refused to organize lawyers. And uh, you can kind of see why they wouldn't. Nevertheless, 
They were a very interesting organization. And in 1886, they actually pulled off a strike around the world of people who wanted the eight-hour day. But the bosses really didn't like it. And the bosses came down on them very, very hard. And in Chicago in 1887, they hanged the leaders of the eight-hour day movement. This had a profound effect, a profound setback for the labor movement. And the May 1st date uh, for the eight-hour day movement receded in the American consciousness. And for the next hundred years or so, Americans did not celebrate May the 1st anymore. They didn't celebrate May Day. They were too scared to. They, uh, they invented another day for Labor Day, the first Monday in September, and just kind of forgot about May the 1st because of the repression that came after the 1886 eight-hour day movement. The next, day, the next period I want to talk about is 1905. In 1905, the Western Federation of Miners, some very tough guys, convened a convention and started an organization called the Industrial Workers of the World. Eugene Victor Debs was one of the main people involved. Eugene Victor Debs had already tried a union that would organize all railroad people together, the American Railway Union, and they had, they had met with failure. There had been other efforts to organize everybody, but in 1905 they actually put together an organization that was committed to organizing everybody and not paying any attention to business unionism. This is what I call power unionism. In other words, they were going to confront the bosses and fight them for power. And I think that's the way to understand the difference between the industrial workers of the world and the predominant union of that time, the American Federation of Labor. The American Federation of Labor had taken its name in 1886. It had replaced the Knights of Labor after that terrible uh, hanging and all that. Uh, the AFL was only interested in organizing the most highly skilled and best paid workers and uh, to get their business unionism uh, model to work. So the AFL really did not like the industrial workers of the world and opposed them every chance they got. That wasn't the biggest problem that the industrial workers of the world had. Their biggest problem was that the government didn't like them. In 1917, they hanged Frank Little, one of the top organizers, and after that, they started raiding all of the IWW offices. They started deporting everybody that they could deport. They, people were horsewhipped, people were beaten, people were killed, and a lot of people were thrown in jail. And the industrial workers of the world barely survived. They still, they're still around, but pretty much in name only. They haven't had a, a big effect on labor since 1917. In 1935, we had another effort to organize everybody. It came in the form of a committee for industrial organizing. Industrial organizing meant not craft organizing. In other words, organizing everybody that worked in the shop, even the guy that swept the floor, even, guy, even the guy that, that uh, delivered the products or the, the, the person that uh, came in and opened the doors early or or everybody, no matter what their skill level, and also no matter what their color, 
This was very important. The CIO was a, a civil rights organization as well as a union, and it fought for workers of all kinds, including workers who did not have any papers, including undocumented workers. Their idea was to organize everybody into these industrial unions, and uh, the model was still business unionism. They were still going to put them together and uh, have a certain income and a certain outflow, but at least they were going to try to organize everybody, and they were quite successful. They changed the AFL. The AFL started in uh, some of the unions in the AFL started uh, using the industrial model where they where they organized everybody. It was it was pretty uh, obvious in the machinist union because the machinist union had been around for a long time, but they only organized machinists just the most highly skilled workers. And after the CIO showed them how to do it, the uh, machinist union, which was an AFL union, started, and or, uh, started organizing everybody. And they did. They organized a lot of people in, into the machinist union. It's still a very good union today. In 1947, the government came around with a really hard punch against labor and put an end to this great labor upsurge that lasted from 1935 to 1947. And the great successes of the CIO, things like Social Security, the Fair Labor Standards Act, things like that stopped in 1947. The Taft-Hartley law passed. Uh, it was a Republican Congress that came up with it. Taft was, was a Republican. And... Uh, the president of the United States was uh, Truman at that time. He, he vetoed it because it was an anti-worker bill. But it didn't stick that way because the Congress had enough Republicans to override Truman's veto, and Taft-Hartley became law. Taft-Hartley broke the CIO. In fact, a lot of the main leaders of the CIO were expelled under under uh, charges of being communists or socialists or uh, maybe sounding like communists or socialists, they were kicked out. And a number of whole unions were kicked out of the CIO Labor Federation after 1947. In 1955, the CIO joined with the AFL, became the AFL-CIO, and it was a good thing because it was better to have one united Federation instead of two separate ones, but most of their policies came from the AFL, and their leadership came from the AFL, and they continued with the business unionism model and all the whole idea of power unionism, the whole idea of organizing everybody, just fell by the wayside. The CIO had a project to organize African Americans. It was called Operation Dixie. And they were going to go through the South and organize people in the South. But they called it off. They said it was a failure, and they dropped it. 1955, CIO joined the AFL and adopted most of the AFL's traditions and uh, activities. Settled, in other words, for business unionism, another defeat. The next year I want to take up is 1995. Now, not everybody talks about 1995. But that's the year that Richard Trumka, John Sweeney, and Linda Chavez Thompson won the election 
for the top leadership of the AFL. For a hundred years before that, the AFL had always elected the same people, or they had elected people who were chosen by the outgoing leadership. So they had pretty much one leadership, one ideology, for a hundred years leading up to 1995, when Sweeney was elected president. Sweeney's dead now, so is Richard Trumka. But Linda Chavez Thompson is still alive here in Texas. She lives in San Antonio, very active, and she's active with the Texas Alliance for Retired Americans, which is my organization. Great woman. They made a big change. In 1997, they took the anti-communist clause out of the AFL-CIO Constitution, which meant for the first time since 1947 that communists would be welcomed back into the labor movement. So some of the best and most dedicated labor activists became part of the labor movement again after 1997. In 1999, they did something even much more profound, uh, a real sea change in the labor movement in 1999. They changed their attitude toward undocumented immigrants. All the way back to the Chinese Exclusion Act from the 1890s, the unions had said that undocumented workers have to be deported and we don't want anything to do with them. But in 1999, the AFL-CIO said, that's wrong. We can't go on this way. We're just losing members and uh, not getting stronger. We need to organize everybody, including the undocumented workers. So they changed and it was, it was a great change. Here in Dallas, we almost immediately held a downtown rally. and We had, a, I would say, at least a couple of thousand people. We claimed 10,000. We, we always claimed more than we actually had. But, uh, but it was a lot. And Linda Chavez Thompson came down from Washington, D.C. to help us with that march. Uh, a year or so later, the uh, city of Dallas got involved, and we had a half a million. We had 500,000 people marching for immigrants' rights in Dallas, Texas because of this big change that the labor movement had made. And the labor movement is still organizing undocumented workers. They have classes in Spanish, classes in how to get citizenship and stuff like that and, uh, and paying real attention to the uh, Latino people who uh, belong in unions. That was a big change. Now, it wasn't an immediate change. Even though the top leadership changed in 1995, it didn't necessarily mean that all of the central labor councils and all of the different unions all over the country were going to change their attitude, but it was a start. It was a big start, and uh, things began to change very profoundly. Here where I live in Dallas, Texas, I believe in 2013, we elected a new principal officer. He had no experience in leadership in the labor movement before. And the first thing he did was go to national and adopt their program, then bring their program back to Dallas. And we suddenly started trying to organize undocumented workers and everybody else in Dallas, Texas Central Labor Council. So by 2013, I think uh, the, the new ideas from John Sweeney, Richard Trumka, and Elizabeth Chavez Thompson were going through the labor movement all the way. However, it didn't mean that they'd given up business unionism. Uh, they still had to bring in a certain amount of money, spend a certain amount of money, and uh, keep things afloat that way. There's, there's, there's not, as, well as, as I said earlier, 
There's not like a group of people that are committed to some new way of organizing, some new approach to the union movement that I'm calling power unionism, but we've had a lot of pressure going in that direction. We certainly have started to organize everybody. You may wonder, for example, why it is that they're organizing Starbucks workers. This is not the first time people have tried to organize Starbucks workers, but when you think about it, it doesn't fit the business unionism model. If you organize Starbucks workers at, at one place or maybe even three or four places, you only get 30 or 40 workers, and that's not enough to pay enough dues to get a union hall or certainly not enough to pay for the experts that would come in and, and service those workers and uh, protect them from the bosses on an hour-by-hour, year-by-year basis. So they are nevertheless organizing Starbucks workers. There are over 200 Starbucks facilities have been organized now by Workers United. And I think the whole labor movement is waiting to see what they're going to do about it. In 2022, we see more solidarity than, than I have ever seen. As I said, I've been doing this for over 50 years. But nowadays, when the unions do something, other unions help. Maybe not as much as I would like, but some people come from other unions. We're going to see this when the flight attendants picket uh, South, Southern, Southwest Airlines uh, here later in September this month. We'll see the uh, people from other unions coming out to help the flight attendants. And that's good. It's not the way it used to be. There was a, a uh, Gallup poll performed last week that said that the approval rating for America's unions is 71%. 71%. Contrast that with the approval ratings for anybody else. Political parties, my 40%, 45% maybe. President of the United States, 44%. Congress, 25% probably. Uh, the whole government of the United States can't even get 60% of the people to come out and vote in the very hottest uh, presidential race. And that's only of registered voters, 60% of registered voters. And don't forget, 75% uh, of American eligible voters are actually registered. So 20 or 25% are not even registered. So the government of the United States can't even get a 60% uh, approval rating and none of the participants in it can get really above 45. I guess maybe somebody's got a 50% somewhere, but nobody's got anything like a 71% approval rating like the uh, labor movement in America has today. So what are you going to do with a labor movement with a 71% approval rating? I've brought this up before. I think they ought to unleash their online organizing and sign up everybody. I think they ought to develop their own foreign policy, get away from the State Department's foreign policy. I think they should coordinate labor fights through the AFL-CIO and, and just join everybody in labor fights. For example, at Starbucks, if we wanted to, if the labor movement would do it, if they could see their way past their lawyers or past their old-timers, they could actually call, for example, a boycott of Starbucks and bring that company to its knees within a week and, and get, a, get whatever kind of contract that they want to get with them. 
I believe they could do that with a 71% approval rating. Maybe they could, or maybe they couldn't. It's not up to me. It's just a suggestion. I think they should be demanding shorter working hours so that they can fight automation. There is no other way to fight automation. And presently, workers are defenseless against automation. All unions are defensive organizations. If they're business unions, they are defensive organizations. They have no offensive punch. They have no offensive strategy. Power unionism, on the other hand, where we organize everybody, is an offensive way to get what working people need and want. You will never win any kind of fight if all you have is a defensive strategy. So a, an offensive strategy is one, one that would be called on. Here's something I think could be done locally at any central labor council. And something that I intend to do if I'm physically able. And that is to activate all of the constituency groups. Labor has constituency groups for everything. And most of those constituency groups will allow people to join who are not union members. So if you put all the constituency groups together, you would have a powerful labor auxiliary. Can you do it? Well, if you've if you got a 71% approval rating, I think you can do it. I think you can start a labor auxiliary consisting of the combined uh, constituency groups, and that labor auxiliary could help with, for example, Starbucks organizing or whatever organizing is going on, whatever kind of contract fight is going to go on, whatever kind of strike is going to go on, whatever kind of slowdown is going to go on, whatever kind of boycott people come up with. We could do those things if we were working together, not only with union members, but also with auxiliary members from the constituency groups. I intend to do it. This is Gene Lance on the Workers Beat Extra.